Has it felt that the world is losing its grip? 24-hour news cycles, Twitter, Facebook, you can feel like the world is losing its grip. Augustine felt that way when the Goths sacked Rome in the year 410. And he wrote this in a sermon right after Rome had fallen. He preached this. You are surprised that the world is losing its grip? That the world has grown old? Think of a man. He is born. He grows up. He becomes old. Old age has its many complaints, coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxious, terribly tired. A man grows old. He is full of complaints. The world is old, full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ, who says to you, The world is passing away. The world is losing its grip. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Thy youth shall be renewed as an eagle. Augustine said that in a sermon after Rome was sacked. The sacking of Rome by the Goths in the year 410 AD was... To Rome, what Muslim fundamentalists bringing down the World Trade Center was to New York and to the United States. It marked the end of an era. Everything would change after that. Nothing would be the same. It was the end of security, and it was the beginning of uncertainty. Augustine wrestled with all of the implications of his crumbling world, and out of that struggle came a big fat book called The City of God. In it, Augustine proposes that mankind basically consists of two groups of people, two cities as it were. On the one hand, there is the city of man, the nations and the cultures and the businesses and the ideas and the trends and politics and the morality of this present age. However much they, they disagree on the surface, they are in fact united at the most fundamental level and that is that they are all fundamentally opposed to God. The human race is deeply united in building its own world on its own terms, and that city, the city of man, will crumble like Rome crumbled before the Goths. But Augustine goes on to say that there is in the Bible another city, and this city can never fall. And it wasn't built by human hands. It can't be destroyed by human hands. It is the city of God. And God invites sinners to pick up and to move, to leave their old lives behind and build new lives in this city. To leave behind the city of man 
and to come into the city of God. Or as you heard Matt preach last week, to be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Well, how is it then we can tell the difference then between these two identities within human society, the city of God and the city of man? And we can't always see it at the level of externals. On what we can see with our eyes, matters of race and education, of class and politics, all of these are ultimately superficial, they're outward. Augustine goes on to say that the real difference is found in the human heart. He writes, two cities have been formed by two loaves, or two loves rather. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter, in the Lord. For the one whose glory is for men, for the other, the greater glory is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up his head in his own glory, and the other says to his God, you are my glory, and you are the lifter of my head. So it should come as no surprise then that when Isaiah concludes his vision of the supremacy of God over all of the nations, that he does so with the image of two cities. Two cities, two destinies. One opposed to God, one for God. One committed to its wickedness, the other walking by faith. Kind of like Dallas, in Fort Worth. For any of you Fort Worthians out there. Or Denton and Austin. South Denton, as we like to call it. There are two cities. And that two cities, those two cities are the key to chapters 24 to 27. Because it's in this section of text that Isaiah looks all the way forward to the end of all things at the end of the age. So what we're going to see today in chapter 26 is we are going to see a strong city and we're going to see a lofty city. Two cities, two destinies. But the dominant figure all throughout is not ultimately the cities. The dominant figure throughout is God. God judging and God saving. God is the reason why the city of man will not endure and God is the reason why the city of God cannot fail. And so as we dive into the text, I want you to keep this big idea in mind. If, if you're taking notes, it's my sermon in a sentence. From start to finish, our salvation is all from God and for God. From start to finish, our salvation is all from God, for God. And we're going to see this big idea flesh itself out in three main points in the chapter. In verses 1 through 6, remember I said the verses are those small numbers. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that God secures us in perfect peace. In verses 7 through 19, we'll see our second point, that God ordains our path to peace. And then finally, in the Verses 20 and 21, we see our final point that we now wait for final peace. 
that God secures us in perfect peace, ordains our path to peace, and we now wait for final peace. Just pay attention to the very beginning of verse 1, chapter 26. He begins with, in that day. Isaiah is here about to conclude another major section in his book. Chapters 1 through 12 reveal God's saving purposes for Judah and for Israel. Chapters 13 all the way through 27, that place where many of you get hung up in your read through the Bible in a year plan because it starts talking about judgments on one nation after another and you go, what's going on here? Well, chapters 13 through 27 reveal God's saving purposes for the entire world, a purpose that will be realized in that day. And so, what will happen in that day? That is the subject of chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27. In chapter 24, the day will welcome Christ's victorious reign. He will defeat his enemies, and he will reign with his people, and the Lord alone will be glorified in that day. But not only will he be glorified alone in that day, but he will also, as we see in chapter 25, be our gracious host in that day. As the Lord prepares a rich banquet for his people of rich food and well-aged wine. This is the feast that Jesus is looking forward to during his earthly ministry when he told his disciples, when he instituted the Last Supper, I will not drink again from this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. He is talking about the meal that he prepares for his people in glory after he's defeated his enemies and reigns in Zion. Well, not only will he be be our gracious host in that day, but in chapter 26, the chapter we'll be looking at this morning, he is going to prove to be our merciful Savior on that day. That on that day, we will say from start to finish, our salvation was all from God and it is all for God. We see Isaiah pick up with this idea in the second half of verse one. He says this, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Here we see that Isaiah is giving us a tour of the city of God. And what exactly is in this city? Well, in chapter one, we see this city is our salvation. Isaiah is here using the image of a city to describe the security of our salvation. That's why it's set up as walls and bulwarks. That the saving mercy of God surrounds his people from all sides and protects them, that they are secure. But then, how do you get into that city? Isaiah immediately answers that in verse 2. That those who enter through its gates are those who are righteous, or literally have a right standing before God. It is those who keep faith, and all of that by God's grace. And while the quality of our faith is important, It is to be all-encompassing and it is to be steadfast. That's the idea that we have here with keeping faith. The quality of our faith is not as important as the object of our faith. At the end of the day, we don't put faith in our faith. Rather, we put our faith in the Lord. 
And we see here that this is what those who put their faith in the Lord will experience in verse three, that we will be kept in perfect peace, specifically those whose minds is stayed on him because we trust in him. That's why Isaiah says in verse four, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in the Lord, keep trusting the Lord. He's an everlasting rock. You can trust him because he is unchanging and he is durable. Horatio Bonar, the old hymn writer, said this, we are not saved by believing in our own salvation, nor by believing in anything whatsoever about ourselves. We are saved by what we believe about the Son of God and his righteousness. The gospel believed saves, not the believing in our faith. Friends, you are not saved because of your faith in your faith. You are saved because you have trusted in Christ and his righteousness. And Christ proves that he alone is the one who can secure this strong city, this this strong salvation because he alone is the one who humbles the lofty city. Look at verse five. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, he lays it low to the ground and he casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it and the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. God will lay low to the dust the city of man, that entire world system who has rejected him through the ages. He will lay it low to the dust, and as we see in verse six, the persecuted church, his people, the poor and the needy. The least of these, as Jesus calls them, will trample over them in victory. This strong city what the author of Hebrews calls such a great salvation. This strong city is not just our security in this life or in the next life, but it is security for us in this life. Isaiah is preaching this to a city who is being besieged. And all of this was meant to be a glimpse and a picture of greater salvation that God would bring to his people in Christ. And that the security that he promises to Jerusalem He is really promising to those who have trusted in Christ to the end of the age that he will be to you tall walls and bulwarks, secure and guarded, protected from all sides. He will be to you a shield and a fortress, a hiding place. That is Christ. There are many things in this world that make us feel insecure, isn't there? Viruses that make us feel insecure, social unrest that makes us feel insecure, the sins of others committed against us that makes us feel insecure and even our own sin can lead us and tempt us to feel insecure. But friends, we are not secure because of anything that we do. We are not secure because of the greatness of our faith. We are not secure because of the righteousness of our deeds. As one person put it, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. He is the builder of this city, and it is a strong city, and all those who enter in are safe, not only in the life to come, but in this life, no matter what trials, no matter what tribulations, no matter what unrest, 
come, you are safe in Christ. Well, not only has God secured us in perfect peace, but God also ordains our path to peace. Look at verse five, or rather verse seven rather. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. We should note a few things in these few verses. We learned all the way back up in verse two that only the righteous may enter into the gates of the city, those who have a righteous standing before God. And we know from the truth of the gospel that that righteousness comes from Christ. It's not anything that we have in and of ourselves. And we come to access it, enjoy it. It is applied to us by faith alone in him because we trust, verse three, in him. But here in verse 7, God is the one who has paved our path into the city. And it is a level path, literally a smooth path. And so while the path through this life may seem daunting and hard for us, it is a smooth, easy road for God. That nothing will derail him. Nothing will knock us off of the path. It is a walk in the park for God to save his people through all of the trials and tribulations of this life. But we see secondly in verse 8 that this path is described as his judgments. The reason that the path is smooth for God is because his authoritative word is always right and always final. What God has declared to be true concerning our future and of our position in Christ before him. What God has declared to be true about this strong city, about this salvation into which we have come. All of God's promises will come to pass. They are indefatigable. They are indestructible. They cannot be swayed. God will fulfill every one of them. And so knowing this in verse 9, that God has paved our path into the strong city with his judgments and that our future is secure because we have trusted in him, what should our response be in this life? We see two things in verses 8 and 9. We see an action and we see a disposition. First, we see an action. Isaiah says, first of all, that we will wait for you. You see that there? We will wait for you. Your name and remembrance or your name and your fame are the desire of our soul. This waiting has always been the way that it goes for God's people. God's people are fundamentally a waiting people. This is why Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, you may remember, let not your hearts be troubled. Why were the disciples' hearts troubled? Because Jesus had just told them that he was leaving. He was leaving them. They had given up everything for him. And he was leaving? They were going to be left alone. They were going to be abandoned. How long are you going to be gone? How long are we going to be here? What are we supposed to do? He says, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he says this, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that you will be where I am also. 
And you know the way to where I am going. But Christ is building a city. And in that city, he is preparing for us room. And he will soon come for us again. Bring us to himself. And bring us into this city once and for all. In the very place that he is right now preparing for us. In all of his sovereign might and power and grace. But second, we see not only an action, we see a disposition. As we actively wait for Christ, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the sermon. As we actively wait for Christ to come again, his name and his fame are to be the desire of our soul. It is him for whom we yearn. It is Christ who we seek in his word and in prayer. Oh, brothers and sisters, the soul of the Christian longs for heaven. I'm on Twitter. One of my favorite follows on Twitter, as toxic as it can be sometimes, is a brother by the name of Isaac who literally every day goes on and reminds his followers we're one day closer to heaven. And that's true. You realize that if you are in Christ, you're one day closer to heaven. You're one day closer to that feast. You're one day closer to every tear being wiped away. You're one day closer to seeing Christ with your face or with your eyes than you were yesterday. And so we wait, but we wait actively according to the knowledge of God in Christ. All of our longings are calibrated by the knowledge of God. And it's a knowledge that the rest of the world simply does not possess. Even in spite, as we'll see in verses 9 through 11, God's abundant grace to them. He says, For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they don't see it. They shall see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Here we see in these handful of verses that God has made himself known to the nations. He makes himself known, according to verse 10, by his providing grace that is his favor. He has given them rain and sun. The nations have experienced his favor, and in this the Lord has provided for them favorable circumstances, that is, uprightness in their land. And yet, even in spite of all of this, we see that the wicked does not learn, and the wicked does not see their hearts are hard. So we see that God is sovereign in blessing and God is sovereign in judging. That's what chapters 13 all the way up to chapter 27 is all about. That his hand has been lifted up against them in blessing and judging and they can't see it. They don't see him and they don't learn of him. But, he says at the end of verse 11, Some of your translations say, let them see. A better translation, I think, is they shall see. They shall see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. There is coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ as Lord. And some will confess those things in great relief and in praise and others will confess those things in great terror because they have rejected the sovereign Lord of the universe. But all will see him, and they will see specifically his zeal for his people. 
for his elect, for those whom he has redeemed by his grace. And on that day we see that the fire for your adversaries will consume them. Our God is a consuming fire and in that day they will be consumed by him. And so here the center of chapter 26, Isaiah asserts the impenetrable blindness of the human heart. That is why we, even on our best days, even in our very best moments, we owe God everything. Because according to verse 12, it is the Lord who has ordained peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all of our works. The Christian life is not what we give to God, but what God has given to us. And what he gives us, according to Isaiah, is peace. And as Matt preached last week, that peace comes by the blood of the cross. As God reconciles all things to himself. He's ordained peace for us. It's the only way that our own hardness of heart, our own unwillingness to see, and our own unwillingness to learn could be overcome. That we're meant to see by the time we get to verse 12 that salvation is all of God and none of us. As one commentator put it, full, beautiful salvation is the settled will of God for weak and stupid people who don't mind being saved. Of course, proud people don't want to be saved. They want to save themselves. Weak, stupid people who know their need, who know they cannot save themselves are those who see good news in the gospel. Good news of being declared a sinner. We already knew that. And good news of God's great work for sinners in Christ and forgiving them and justifying them and redeeming them and reconciling them and adopting them into his family as sons and daughters. That is good news to those who have had their hearts changed by God to respond in faith to the gospel. Friends, no one can save themselves. No one can overcome their hard hearts. We possess neither the ability, the free will, the power, nor the righteousness to repair ourselves and escape the wrath of God. It has to be God's work in Christ alone or there is no salvation. It has to be God's work in Christ alone because he alone gets all the glory. We get no glory. We are passive recipients. He is active giver. All sovereign grace. Omnipotent world creating power. Changing hearts and saving sinners. It's amazing. But God has not only ordained peace for us, verse 12, he also keeps us in peace. Look at this, verse 13. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They, speaking of the other lords, they're all dead. They're not going to live. They're shades. They're not going to arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and you've wiped out all the remembrance of them. You have torn them down in the same way that all the memorials are being torn down in our country right now. Nobody wants to remember them. Only here, God is the one that has done it. Verse 15, but even though you have evaporated the memory of every Lord who has ruthlessly ruled over us, 
Even through that, you have increased the nation. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Here, Isaiah is recalling all of the times in the past when Israel was ruled by other kings. And even this time in the present when when they have other nations like Assyria coming against them. When things seem bleak for God's people. But he's saying when we look over the scope of redemptive history, what we see is that only God's work remains. And in that last day, it will only be the work of God that remains. The works of every other Lord that has opposed him and his people and his gospel will be evaporated by the justice of God. In fact, notice in verse 15 that even though the works of some of the mightiest men in all of the history of the world, the Romes of the world have been wiped out and the United States of Americas of the world have been wiped out, God has glorified himself by increasing a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a promised people. Isaiah is noting how God has kept his promise from millennia earlier to multiply Abraham's descendants. And though the path has been tough for his people, that path has been level and smooth for God. No Egypt, no Assyria, and nothing will derail the promises that God has made to his people and will keep him from enlarging them and bringing all of his elect in and bringing them all the way home through the preaching of the gospel until the end of the age. And so in light of this truth, of God ordaining and preserving his people, Isaiah in verses 16 through 18 contrasts what God has done for us with what we have done for God. He says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. Speaking of those saints of old, the Israelites under Egypt, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. They were crushed to a whisper. Verse 17, like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. He's identifying them in the present day with, those, with God's people in the past. And he's saying that in the same way that your discipline did not produce any fruit, see the book of Judges, so it seems to be the same in our own day. Verse 18, we were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. Notice in verse 15 that even though the works of some of the mightiest men in history have been wiped out, God has increased the nation, but here God has produced for himself in that nation a strong city of salvation. He has kept us and made our paths level. He has ordained peace for us and kept us in that peace. And from age to age, he has birthed a glorious salvation for his people. And what have we birthed in return? Wind. Nothing. We have nothing to offer God in the end. Spurgeon said this, that if heaven were by merit, that is, if I could earn it by my own deeds or works, if heaven were by merit, it would never be heaven to me, for if I were in it, I should say, I am sure I am here by a mistake. I am sure that this is not my place and that I have no claim to it. But if it be of grace and not of works, then we may walk into heaven with boldness. Our greatest works for God are like wind. They're nothing with respect to 
to the security of our salvation. But we have a redeemer, according to verse 9, who has indeed done for us all our works. That he has obeyed in every way that you and I have not. He has humbled himself to the point of death and love for his people in a way that you and I would never think to lay down our lives for one another, much less in radical ways, not to mention mask wearing. We find that our own love is small and fickle and trite, but the love of Christ is great and grand and wonderful. And he has done it all in our place for us. He has done all of our works. It is all according to the grace of God. What God has done for his people is so far and away greater than what God's people have done for him. That in spite of all of our failures in discipleship, in spite of all of our doubts, and in spite of all of our faithlessness, in spite of all of the ways we boast in ourselves and not in Christ, and in spite of all of our stubborn and besetting sins, in spite of all of our self-righteous wind-producing works, God will still, verse 19, raise us up to a new morning. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Why would you sing for joy? Because I didn't have anything to do with it. It's all of God's grace and it's all for God's glory. For your due, due is always speaking about earthly well-being and divine blessing and royal favor. That's the image of due through the Old Testament. For your due is the due of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is one of the clearest promises of the resurrection in the Old Testament. That even in spite of the fact that our greatest works are win, God's grace is still greater yet. And he will fulfill his promises by raising us up to glory in the last day so that we might be with him and reign with him and feast with him where there will be no more sin and there will be no more suffering. Brother or sister, is there anything in your life that you're really, really, really proud of and boast about because it has nothing to do with you? If you're anything like me, you love to boast about things that have everything to do with you. But the Bible says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is a kind of pride, a good pride, that humbles us and satisfies us because it's not about us. It's not about the pride of this world. It's not about the pride of the lofty city, the city of man, the pride that inflates the ego but leaves the self empty, looking for more. Now the boast of the city of God, the strong city, is God himself. Everything good that we are and have is his doing and not ours. What have you have that you did not receive? Paul says. Our place in the city of God is his gift of grace. He is the one who keeps in perfect peace, the mind who has stayed on him, verse three. He is the one who stimulates our hearts with a longing for him such that our soul yearns for him in the night and our spirit within us earnestly seeks him, verse nine. Faith and longing, no matter 
how little faith you may have, no matter how faint it may be, prove that God is at work in your heart. It proves that you have been raised with Christ and that yearning that you have is the most important thing about you because it's not only the key to your future, it's the key to your present. Look at verses 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury is passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. In verses 1 through 6, we saw that God secures us in perfect peace. In verses 7 through 19, we saw how God ordains our path to peace. It's all of his work and it's all of grace. And finally, in verses 20 and 21, we are exhorted in response to that great grace to safely wait for final peace. Notice how this chapter, chapter 26 and verse 2, begins with open the gates. Well, now it ends in verse 20 with shut your doors behind you. Those who are hidden away in Christ are as safe from judgment as Noah was from the floods in the ark. Remember what he said, Genesis 6, and God shut the door behind him. God secured Noah. God is the one that saved him through judgment. And now Isaiah is pulling from that image and he's saying the same thing is true for you. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, that you are being saved by judgment in the same way that Noah was, in the same way that Isaiah is talking about here, if you have trusted in Christ. Because you have not been hidden in an ark, you have been hidden in Christ. And he is your security, he is your strong city, he is the walls and the bulwarks that surround you, left, right, front, back, above and below, that protects you and preserves you through this life and into the next so that you might glorify and enjoy him forever. That is Christ. That he has brought us through judgment by his grace. But our job now is to wait, to hide ourselves in Christ for a little while. And how do we do that? Let me give you at least five things. Number one, remind yourself that you are not alone. Oh, sin and Satan loves to convince us that we exist on an island. Nobody sins like me. Nobody, nobody struggles like me, but you are not alone. Tell yourself again and again that you've not been singled out. You are part of a massive company of people that have been called to wait. Remember, Abraham waited many years for a promised son. Remember that Israel waited 120 years, 420 years rather, for deliverance from Egypt, then another 40 years before they could enter into the land that God promised them. Brothers and sisters, waiting is not an interruption of God's plan. It is his plan. And if the Lord has called you to wait, then you can be sure that he will be with you in your waiting. Number two, remind yourself that waiting is active. Usually we understand waiting as something that we do in the doctor's office. We see it as a meaningless waste of time. As if the doctor is behind schedule. We're stuck in a reception area with nothing to do but read outdated magazines on golf. 
But our waiting on God must not be understood in this way. God doesn't call us to inactivity. Our waiting is positive, it's purposeful, and it's spiritual. And as we've seen in our passage this morning, the call to wait is a call to the activity of remembering. We saw that all the way back up in verse two, the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Verse eight, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul that we wait by actively remembering. Specifically, we remember who God has revealed himself to be in his word and in the person and work of his son, Jesus, of how he's fulfilled all of his promises to us in Christ. And we remember what he's done in our own lives in changing us and transforming us. We all need to share our testimonies way more often than we do so that we might remember what God has done for us. But also, thinking about how waiting is active, notice that this entire chapter is a song, verse one, to be sung. So we can conclude that our call to wait, as Isaiah is calling God's people to wait in this chapter, is a call to the activity of worship, to worshiping God for his power and his wisdom and his love and his grace. We actively worship him. But to wait is also to be called to the activity of serving, specifically looking for ways to assist and encourage one another to endure in this life as other believers have been called alongside you to wait with you. This is at the heart of church membership. We commit to one another to help one another wait well until Christ returns. The call to wait is also a call to the activity of praying of confessing the struggles of your heart and seeking the God who has called you to wait. That we go to him because he has opened a way for us to approach his throne of grace in our times of need. Thirdly, celebrate how little control you have. Because the constant striving in life to be this little God over some corner of creation is so draining and so futile and the reason that so many of us are depressed and discouraged and anxious waiting in the way that God prescribes waiting should actually be a relief to our souls it's a reminder that we don't have as much power and control as we like to think that we do that when God requires us to wait he helps us to realize that that we don't have to bear the whole load on our skinny little shoulders of our families and our neighbor and our church and our country. That yes, we may have God-given responsibilities to any number of areas, including those things, and we want to be faithful in those areas, but that is very different from pretending that you are sovereign in any of those areas. The truth of Isaiah 26 is that we are being carried on the strong and capable shoulders of Jesus. He is the everlasting rock. So celebrate the Christ is sovereign over the whole world and you are not. That's good news for anxious, depressed, beat down, and weary people who continually try to make themselves gods over teeny tiny little corners of creation. Waiting becomes rest. Fourthly, celebrate God's commitment to his work of grace. As you're waiting, reflect on how deeply broken and fractured this world really is. That's no stretch of the imagination in these days. Reflect on how 
pervasive your own struggle with sin and pride really is. And then celebrate the fact that God is committed to his work of grace to accomplish his purposes in you despite all of those things. As we've seen in chapters 24 and 25 and now in chapter 26, Christ will not forsake the work of his hands until all things are made new. And so we want to celebrate the fact that God will not forsake the process of grace in our lives in order to deliver us from whatever momentary comfort or pleasure or ease that we would rather have in our time of exhaustion and discouragement and weakness. Christ loves us too much to exchange eternal glory for temporary gratification. That he saves us through judgment, through tribulation, and it's the very path that our Savior himself walked because of the joy set before him. Finally, fifthly, long for eternity. Long for eternity. There is... One thing that waiting is meant to do, and that is, it is meant to make us long for home. This makes me think about camping. I'm fairly confident that the entire purpose of camping is to make you thankful for home. It's fun at first, late nights, mosquitoes cooking hot dogs and hamburgers on fires that took five attempts to make, no showers, stinkiness, compound all of that by 5,000 when you have kids. And you get to the end of it and you think, yeah, that was great, but I'm really ready to go home. In a similar way, we're just camping in this life. We're temporarily dwelling in this world. This is not our home. The hardships of this life are not our final destination. Waiting is meant to produce in us a yearning for God, to be finally free from sin and suffering and to be with him and to enjoy him forever. We want to be where Christ is. Does your waiting draw you closer to God? Or does it push you further away from God? Does does your waiting produce in you a faith that is stronger? As the Apostle Paul says it did for Abraham in Romans 4. Or does it weaken your faith? Does your waiting serve to teach you truths about yourself? Or has your waiting only made you more blind about yourself and angry about your circumstances? Is the way you wait enabled you to reach out and minister to others better? Or has it simply drawn you deeper into the claustrophobic drama of your own waiting? Where the entire world gets shrunk down to the size of your own preferences and your own unmet needs and unmet wants. Hard to see other people when all we see is ourselves. Brothers and sisters, take hold of the grace that God makes available. God has opened the gates to the strong city and he has paved the path that leads you in. 
and he has shut the door behind you. You are safe in your waiting. You are not outside of God's plan as you wait. As you wait for full redemption from your sin, as you wait for full healing from your physical ailments, as you wait for reconciled relationships, as you wait to be reunited with loved ones who have trusted in Christ who you have not seen, as you wait and wait and wait through a world that continues to be hostile and as we continue to to camp as in a way, homeless men and women in the city of man who is hostile to God, his people, and his gospel, you are safe in your waiting. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can derail God's plan. His path is smooth. It's a piece of cake for the almighty God and Redeemer. And so as one person put it, waiting It's not just about what I get at the end of the world, but it's about who I become as I wait by God's grace. Let's pray.